Courage. What makes a king out of a slave? Courage. What makes the flag on the mast a wave? Courage. What makes the elephant charge his tusk in the misty mist or the dusky dusk? What makes the muskrat guard his musk? Courage. What makes the sphinx the seventh wonder? Courage. What makes the dawn come up like thunder? Courage. What makes the hottentot so hot? What puts the ape in apricot? What have they got that I ain't got? Courage. You could say that again. How many of you love the, the uh, Wizard of Oz? Any Wizard of Oz fans in here? Oh, I absolutely love the Wizard of Oz. Well, first of all, good morning. It's good to see everybody. You know, as a kid, the Cowardly Lion was always my favorite. Anybody, who, anybody else enjoy the Cowardly Lion? Maybe that's your least favorite. I don't know. It, for me, it was always my favorite because he could always make me laugh. I was always down with anything or anyone that could make me laugh. What he said, how he said it, the songs he sang, all of that. But the poor guy just wanted what? A little courage. You know, and I think that's how we often feel day in and day out, right? Just want a little courage to face the things that we got to face day in and day out. Some of you guys are dealing with some pretty serious stuff. You know, about 10 years ago, I spoke at the Main District Senior High Camp alongside one of my friends, Tim Owens, who was the youth pastor at that time at the South Portland Church of the Nazarene. Tim and I talked a lot about the subject of surrender and sacrifice all week long. And we asked the teens one simple question every single night. And here's the question. What is your sacrifice? What is your sacrifice? And let me, let me tell you, when you ask a question like that to teenagers, they will tell you. What is your sacrifice? You know, I got to thinking this week about how much courage it takes to be willing to surrender and sacrifice something from your life to God. Something maybe that you like to hang on to really, really tight, and you're being asked to sacrifice it to God. But then I thought, you know, if we can challenge a group of students to do that at a teen camp, how much more should we expect that from us as adults? Here's my prayer for all of us this morning, that we learn to be courageous in our faith, both individually and then collectively as a church. So what does that mean exactly, to be a courageous church? Well, it means to be a church that's so rooted in the love and in the hope of God that you're not afraid to do anything for him. You're not afraid to say anything for him. You're not afraid to go anywhere for him. And let me tell you, that last one, for my, myself and my family, it was put up or shut up. Are you willing to go anywhere for him? If you have your Bible... Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 20? Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 17 through verse 24. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Acts 20, verses 17 to 24. Love hearing those pages turn. Keep it coming. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house to house. 
I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You may be seated. Be courageous. What goes through through your head when you hear that? Be courageous. Paul talks a lot about that. There are three things that Paul talks about, and I'm going to give you two of them right in the beginning. I still need you to stay to hear the rest of the sermon, but I'm going to give you the three points. Be courageous in your suffering, be courageous in your witness, and be courageous in your decisions. We're going to take a closer look at those things this morning together. First thing Paul talks about is to be courageous in your suffering. Now, nobody wants to talk about this. Nobody wants to hear about you need to suffer or you're going to suffer, right? But all you have to do is look on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, on and on and on it goes. Those are probably all the old people ones, as my son tells me. And you'll see that a lot of us are going through some stuff right now. And that's just the stuff we know about because we've posted it right on, on the screen so we can read about it. In verses 18 to 19, Paul says, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. Paul says, Remember, church, how I lived. Don't forget it. This is how I lived. I, lived. I, I served the Lord with humility. I served the Lord with tears. I served, served the Lord with suffering. Now, there are a couple of ways to interpret this. First, that Paul is saying as he was serving the Lord, as he was doing the work of ministry, he suffered. He endured great suffering for the sake of the gospel. How much suffering do we do in 21st century America for the sake of the gospel? We get a glimpse of this interpretation in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about some of his sufferings. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Now, to me, that's an odd way to phrase that. Anybody else, when you've read that, why did they say it that way? Why did they just call it 39 lashes? Why is he giving us a math lesson here? 40 lashes minus one. Well, it was because they figured out that if you whip someone 40 times, guess what? They usually die. So what, do they, what they do instead is that they would whip them around 39 times, and then they would bring you right to the brink of death and stop. Hmm. So Paul was whipped to within an inch of his life five times for the gospel. Think about that. 39 times, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. What do you think? You think Paul was constantly in danger? Sounds like it. He says, I've labored and toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, all that physical pain, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So through all of that, where is his focus on all the other churches? Paul suffered. He served the church with suffering and that should be an encouragement to those of us who are going through some stuff right now. How many of you guys are going through some stuff? You don't have to raise your hand. 
I know we are. We're not real good about sharing with each other, but I know we are. Because what it tells us is that in our suffering, God's not forgotten us. He hasn't abandoned us. He has not forsaken us. Because here's Paul faithfully serving God, doing ministry all the while he's enduring great suffering. We just think of Paul, big Paul, right? This, this pillar of, a, of the church. We don't think about the suffering that he's going through. But there's another way to interpret this, that, that Paul served the church with his suffering. That Paul's suffering has a way to serve the church. It's his way of serving the church. And through his suffering, the church was being built up. I guess the question for me is, how is that possible? We all know Christians and non-Christians alike go through suffering in this life, right? We know the Bible never says, you know what? If you're a Christian, guess what? You're going to be exempt from suffering. I haven't seen that anywhere. In fact, the Bible says that if you're a Christian, you're probably going to suffer more because... On top of all the normal stuff that we face in life, we're also going to suffer for our faith. If you're serious about it. That's what Jesus said. We'll have pain, we'll have difficulties, we'll have troubles. But the biggest difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not whether we suffer, it's how we suffer. Right? See, the Christian suffers with unyielding hope and unconquerable joy. Knowing that because of Jesus' death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Because of Jesus, death has no sting. Sin has no power anymore. Satan has no claim anymore. The Christian has an eternity of pure joy and happiness and wonder to look forward to. Why? Because of Jesus. And that's what Paul believed to the very core of his being. He dedicated his life to it. See, Paul knew that not only was his pain temporary, not only was his suffering light in comparison to eternity, but they were also achieving for him a glory that he wouldn't have had if he had not gone through it. And his glory far outweighed every bit of the pain and suffering he went through. It's why he could suffer courageously. Because as he suffered courageously in the path of obedience, there's the tough part. In the path of obedience, he was serving the church and he was also building it up. With his hardships, Paul was building up the church because in his joy-filled, hope-filled, courageous suffering, people saw Christ as worthy to be worshipped because of Paul's witness. They began to see knowing Christ and being known by Christ as better than any worldly comfort or success or wealth that's out there. They saw in Paul, they saw in Paul Jesus, right? They saw Jesus, someone who was infinitely valuable, more precious than gold or silver or life itself. I may tell you, when people see that, when they see that in you, they see hope. How many people out there would like to see a little hope? When they see in the middle of their deepest, darkest pain, a joy that is strong and unshakable. They see a hope that is unyielding and invincible. When their entire world around them is falling apart, and their joy doesn't, and their hope doesn't, their faith doesn't fall apart, their faith grows exponentially. When people see that in you, that's light in the darkness. That's food for people's soul. There's some starving people out there. That's why Paul says, when you suffer, don't lose hope. Don't give up, but trust in the Lord and find courage in him. 
man, do we look around at everything else in the world to find courage and hope in, and the last place we look When you suffer, two things are happening. First, you're being built up. I know it doesn't feel that way. Your momentary pain and suffering is achieving for you a glory that far outweighs them all. Second, the church is being built up. Be courageous in your suffering. Second thing Paul talks about is for us to be courageous in our witness. At work, at school, be courageous in your witness. In verses 20 and 21 of Acts 20, Paul says, You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. You know, for me, the book of Acts is one of the best places that you can go to get a picture of the kind of church that God wants. The Acts 2 church, right? We talk a lot about that. When you go through Acts, one of the things you cannot miss is the boldness and the courage of the church when it comes to the witness of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's all through it. All the way back in Acts 4, we have Peter and John, right? They're in front of the religious powers. They proclaim the gospel and what? They get thrown in prison. This becomes a recurring theme. The Bible says that when the religious authorities saw the courage and the boldness of Peter and John, and they saw that they were ordinary, uneducated men, they were what? Astonished. Amazed. What in the world? So Peter and John, they get released from prison, and when they get out, what do they do? They don't pray for more safety. Do you know what they pray for? More boldness. Right? More boldness. Look upon, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In Acts chapter 5, the very next chapter, they get arrested again. Religious leaders tell them, hey, guys, don't you hate being arrested? I mean, seriously, stop teaching in Jesus' name and it'll stop. Peter's response, we must obey God rather than men. The religious leaders, man, they don't like that at all. So once again, Peter and John get beat. In Acts 5, it says... Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In Acts 6 and 7, the next two chapters, Stephen shows up. You remember Stephen? And he preaches in front of an angry mob. What happens to him? Gets stoned to death. Mm. In Acts 9, Paul shares the gospel, and the Jews want to kill him. In verse 23, Paul has to be let out a window in a basket to escape. That's unique. Five verses later, he's preaching again in Jerusalem. And now guess what? The Jews and the Greeks, they want to kill him, right? If I can turn my page here. Oh, my goodness. In Acts 12, James, the brother of Jesus, gets martyred because of the gospel. Peter gets arrested yet again. This guy's getting arrested like he's Otis from Mayberry, right? In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel. They get driven out of Pisidia. Then they go to Iconium in Acts 14, and it says in verse 3 that they remained a long time doing what? Speaking boldly for the Lord. In Acts 14, verse 5, two verses later, we find out the Jews and the, the, Jews and the Greeks in Iconium want to stone Paul. So where does he escape to? Lystra. In Lystra, Paul again preaches the gospel. In verse 19, the people of Lystra actually stone Paul this time. So Paul's already escaped a potential stoning, only to actually be stoned in Lystra. 
They drag Paul outside the city and they leave him for dead. So Paul gets stoned. Now, not in the 21st century understanding of getting stoned. More the first century understanding. Here's what I'm wondering. Do you truly understand what stoning is? Here's what happens. They dig a ditch. They put you down in the middle of it. And they get these big, huge stones. And it's not like they're throwing little rocks or pebbles at you. And this big group of men, they, they line the outside of it. And they just start hurling these, thrones down, these stones down at you. And they keep throwing them until you're dead. That doesn't sound like fun at all. So Paul's the victim of a stoning. They thought he was dead. He wasn't. In verse 20, the disciples come back. They pick him up and they get him out of there. This is a bizarre scene to me. Why, you ask? Because the very next day, Paul goes with Barnabas to Derby to preach. The next day after getting stoned. They thought he was dead. Do you realize how far that is? I looked it up. From Lystra to Derby is 54.5 miles. The next day after being nearly stoned to death. Let that sink in. Now, I like you guys and all. But if after this message you stone me, I'm taking a sick day tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not walking the equivalent of New Philly to Zanesville and preaching again. Not happening, sorry. Verse 21 says, when they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned. They returned. Returned to where? To Lystra. The place where he just got stoned. This guy's tough and stubborn. I mean, Paul, for the love of Pete, why would you go back to the place where you just got stoned for preaching the gospel and they just left you for dead? Well, it tells us why in verse 22. He indeed went back to Lystra, Lystra but, but here's why. Listen to this. To strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith. Would you do that? And the list just kind of goes on and on and on like this with Paul. It's in this context that Paul says to the Ephesians church, church, this is what it means to be the church. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Remember how I lived among you, how I did not hesitate. The Greek word hesitate, you know what that means? It means to shrink back in fear. Remember how I didn't shrink back in fear to preach you anything that would be helpful for you. I didn't shrink back in fear from telling you the truth. Maybe you'll hate me, maybe you'll stone me, maybe you'll throw me in prison, but I wanted you to know the hope that you have in the Lord Jesus. That's why I did it. That's why I preached and suffered boldly and courageously. That's why I did it. You know, I think we have this wrong idea of courage. When we think of Paul in front of all this opposition, when we think of Paul in front of the Greeks and the Jews who wanted to kill him, I think we get the wrong idea of courage. What do you think of when you think of courage? Do you think of the cowardly lion? I think the idea of courage that we have often comes from all the Hollywood action movies, right? We think that's what it means, courageous, to be courageous, one man, one woman, against an army. No problem, unflappable, cool as the other side of the pillow. Or as Ryan Day said last Saturday, Ohio against the world, right? Here's Paul standing before the authorities. We're gonna stone you, Paul. Paul's bound and beaten, and he has this Clint Eastwood sneer on his face. Can you picture it? Paul looks up to them and says in his best Clint Eastwood, his best Clint Eastwood voice, I just have to ask you one question. Do you feel lucky? 
That's the sort of image we have, right? Fearlessness, but here's the thing, that's not courage. Courage is not the absence of fear because if you didn't have fear, you wouldn't need courage, right? Courage is doing the right thing in the presence of fear. And that's what Paul had. Paul had a courage that stemmed not from fearlessness, but from hope and humility. See, humility is an others-centeredness that leads to self-forgetfulness. Let me say that again. Humility is an others-centeredness that leads to self-forgetfulness. And it came from Paul's love for the church. I think we all kind of instinctually know that love's going to make you humble. Love will make you self-forgetful. Love will make you others-centered, right? Paul's humility came from his love for the church. Paul also had a hope that was rooted in the conviction that because of Jesus, guess what? The best is yet to come. Do you believe that? The best is yet to come. It was those two things that made Paul incredibly bold and incredibly courageous in the face of tremendous opposition. And tremendous opposition just doesn't fit it. It was way more than that. That's what the world needs from the church. That's what your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members and your friends need from you. They need a love that says, I love you more than my reputation. I love you more than my job. I love you more than my success. I love you more than my comfort. I love you more than not feeling awkward. I love you more than being thought of as cool or hip or relevant. Because I said hip, I'm certainly not. (laughs) Therefore, I will not shrink back. And I will boldly and courageously proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That is your stake in the sand. If you really do believe that the gospel is good news for all people, to be courageous in your suffering is what you'll do. Be courageous in your witness, church. Third thing Paul talks about is for us to be courageous in our decisions. Now, what does that mean? What does Paul mean by that? In verses 22 and 23, Paul says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So, Paul, you're going to Jerusalem. What are you going to do there? I don't know. Where are you going to stay? I don't know. What are you going to say? I don't know. Who are you going to meet there? Not sure. What's your plan when you get there? Don't have one. Paul, what do you know? And Paul says, I just know whatever happens, prison, hardship, suffering, they await me. But guess what? I'm still going because the Spirit wants me to do it. Folks, that's hardcore. And what what Paul's saying here is a direct connection to Jesus. Do you know who most theologians believe wrote the book of Acts? Anybody? Luke. That's who they believe wrote it. And this is a direct connection to Jesus in Luke 9, where after the second time that Jesus predicts his death, Luke says he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Why? What's in Jerusalem? The cross. This is one of the classic hallmarks of the church because this is one of the classic hallmarks of Jesus. Because of their hope and because of their love, Christians will go to the hard places the dark places, the broken places, the places no one else wants to go to be the salt, to be the light to the world who so desperately needs it. Is God calling you to go to one of those places? So the question is, what's your Lystra? 
What's your Jerusalem? What is that hard place, that difficult place God's calling you to bring the hope of Jesus to? Only you know that. What's God putting in your heart? A few years ago, I heard a sermon on miracles. The pastor talked about the Christians in the second and third century Roman world when the terrible plagues hit, they, they stayed and they helped instead of fleeing like everybody else did. It was the Christians who stayed and they took care of the sick and they died right along with them. They died loving and caring for their enemies and thereby showing the world a picture of this outrageous love of God. But what if they hadn't? What if they turned tail and ran like everyone else? What would have been the price tag of that? The world would have been deprived of the beautiful picture and the beautiful example of Christ's outrageous and sacrificial love for us. The pastor went on to talk about Martin Luther King Jr., and I'll paraphrase, paraphrase his quote. For the sake of love, you may put, be put in jail. You may lose a job or social standing with your particular group. But if physical death is the price that some must pay to love, there could be nothing more Christian In the end, the purpose of life is not to be happy or to achieve pleasure and avoid pain, but is to do the will of God, come what may. We sang about that this morning. See, God calls us to be faithful, not successful. And know that kind of flies in the face of us as Americans, right? To be faithful, not successful. Does that change some things for you? After I listened to that, I asked myself, and I still ask myself, can I live this? Have you asked yourself that? Can I do this? Could Tiffany and I live this out if God called us to, or, or is it all just talk? Is it all just kind of a nice thought? Is it maybe just a sermon that I hear at church, and then I go home, and I forget all about it? Not that any of you would do that. After a month, about a month after hearing this sermon, my dad who was the district superintendent of Maine at the time, he called me up and asked me to consider pastoring a church in a small town in Maine called Gardner, a town of about 3,500. And this was his pitch to me. He said, Scott, not sure what the pay is yet. There's no plan kind of set in stone, no guarantees. I'm, I, I'm talking to you about maybe leaving one of the largest Nazarene churches in central Ohio, leave 18 years of youth ministry, and start from scratch as a senior pastor in a little backwoods town called Gardner. The congregation's gonna be a little bit different from Shepherd. In fact, the congregation's gonna be smaller than your youth group. You won't be speaking to just teens anymore. You're gonna have to learn a new way to speak, new way to study, new way to learn, new way to lead. So what do you say? Do you know what got me? This thought. If I leave my job at Shepherd as a youth pastor, because all in all, it's a great place to work. I still have incredibly fond memories of of youth pastoring there. There would be a hundred other youth pastors lined up to take my spot. Absolutely. But very, very few are lining up to preach in little churches in Maine, the state that I've loved my whole life. So I said, cool. God, if this is what you want, let's go pastor in Gardner, Maine. Much to the chagrin of my wife. You know, I'm still connected to Shepherd by the relationships that I formed there for eight years. You guys saw some of them that came to the installation service. There's five or six of them from Shepherd still. <laughs> that was amazing to me. 
You know, and at the time, they saw me as a missionary to Maine. And I hope and pray that I served and encouraged them as much as they served and encouraged me. I'm not sure that was an even exchange. And I'm still connected to Gardner Nazarene by the relationships I formed there for five years. It really was a great stay. I'm still connected to BG First by the relationships I formed there for six years. I love those people dearly, and I always will. And I hope and pray that I served and encouraged them as much as they served and encouraged me. My hope and prayer is that New Philly Naz, this church, will press the boundaries of what it truly means to live courageously for the Lord. But here's the question. Please think about this. Are you willing to do that? To live courageously for the Lord? To do what he tells you to do, come what may? By the standards that Paul laid out, courageous in your suffering, courageous in your witness, and courageous in your decisions, are you willing? I'm gonna show you, it's about a four minute video to close the service out. And it's all about a group of people that are making decisions that are courageous, that are bold, that are hard, set to music. And it's a commercial, it's a long ended commercial of all things, I think, for an insurance company, of all things. But the first time I saw it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. So put yourself in one of these people's situations that you'll see there's several, there's a bunch of them there. And ask yourself, am I doing everything I can for the Lord? And am I being courageous?
sun and moon to you and if you share yeah you give what you share with the world is what it keeps of you service. We thank you for how you've reminded us to be courageous in our faith. Would you help us as we walk out of here to have your hands, your feet, to have your eyes, to show love, and to be courageous about it. We love you. We pray these things in your precious name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Have a fantastic week. Know that you're loved.